Good morning, saints of HBC. You can turn to Daniel chapter 2 as we continue to think on the God who reveals and pick up where we left off last week, uh, halfway through chapter 2 and verse 31. That song we just sang is precious because it, it not only speaks of the greatness of the God that we already sang about, but it speaks of the hope and anticipation we have of being with him and, and even just the lyrics that talk about uh, it's, it's not just a kingdom in the glory and we think about in the splendor of, of something like the kingdom of God, streets of gold, mansions, all that, but the, the familial language of a father welcoming children home with open arms. Um, and I think that's what warms our hearts because we all can identify with that, that longing at time to time in life we have to be home. Whether you were a kid away at college that freshman year and you couldn't wait for Thanksgiving to get there to finally get home because it wasn't, it, where you were currently wasn't where you wanted to be necessarily for the long time. And, and I think that pairs well with Daniel because it's, it's a story of Daniel's life and others who were not home. They were in exile in Babylon. And they were longing to be back in Jerusalem, longing to be back in the place that they called home, the place that God had given to them. But in the meantime, we're in exile. And exile is an apt word for God's people. In fact, maybe from here on out, I'll call you good morning exiles of HBC if that's uh, all right with you because it might reiterate in our minds that that is also part of our identity as Christians. Uh, Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And those are identities we don't think about too often uh, for whatever reason, probably just because we don't use the terminology, but that terminology is somebody who's not home. It's the, it's the businessman on the trip where he may have a few days in a hotel, but he's not moving into the room. He may unpack his bags, but it's just for a brief stay. He's not setting up shop. And that's the way that we are as Christians to think of our identity. We are those in exile. We are sojourners. We are people who are on our way to somewhere else. And Peter picks up that language in the second chapter in verse 11, and says, it's not just that we are on our way somewhere else, but while we are on our way, there's a certain way we're to live. He goes on to say, so keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When that great day of that kingdom coming is finally arrived, that anybody that would have been near the life of a Christian, someone in exile, someone passing through, they would have had a taste, we'll call it salt, like Jesus did, a taste of something different, a preserving quality to the way that Christians live in this world because we don't live for this world. And there's a connection between the two that Peter makes in 1 Peter 2, that you see exemplified in Daniel. That, that he is not just biding his time in Babylon, hoping nobody notices him, trying not to ruffle any feathers. No, God has put him there at that time for a season and for a reason to be an influence in a pagan land. And as we saw last week and talked about from Jeremiah 29, even seeking the good or the welfare of that place that he was in, to be fruitful in that place he was in. And we resonate with that in 2022 in America. Or you could be Daniel in 550 BC in Babylon. Or you could be Peter writing in 65 AD in Rome. The identity doesn't change, though, though everything around us might be changing. 
Our identity in Christ as exiles and sojourners causes us to live a different way with honorable conduct, good deeds in the world, ultimately allowing the lost to see a difference that Jesus actually makes in our life. And that's my prayer for going through Daniel over the next few months. It wouldn't be that we would just see the big picture, which is that the God of heaven reigns, Despite present circumstances, he is in control, and that is reason to rejoice, and that's reason to praise. That's the big picture of Daniel. But there is something that's to inspire us or or motivate us to live with the same courageous, that's the word, to live with the same courageous convictions that Daniel had. And he was in a decadent culture, a debauched culture, A culture where people were dying and not knowing that there was truth out there. And here God puts him and his friends right in the courts of the king. That they would be a difference maker. And that we would be inspired by that to live our lives with similar conviction. Because we live in a decadent and decaying culture as well. So let's pick up in the crisis moment that we left off last week. Where Daniel is speaking up for his own good and others' good because he wants to give glory to the God who spoke to him, the God of heaven who revealed to him Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he gave him praise for. Now it's a chance for him to get before Nebuchadnezzar and help him see what God wants him to know. So I'm going to read actually a few verses from last week to set the the scene where Daniel now comes into the presence of the king. And then we'll pick up in verse 31 with the action in point one, the revealing of it. So follow with me, verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and thus said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation of the dream. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man. Enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the revealed word of God endures forever. So here's the situation. The most powerful king on the planet at this time in the late 500s, early 600s BC, this King Nebuchadnezzar who has all the earthly power a man could want can't sleep because God has wanted to give him a message. He is wanting to wake him up and shake him up to a reality that you wouldn't expect a king this powerful to have. (laughs) You're not in control. Of course he would think he was in control. The kingdom is thriving under him. They are the wealthiest and most powerful on planet earth at the time. 
Why would he ever second guess himself? Unless God wanted to reveal himself to him to show him who is really in charge. And so he did. And in verses 1 through 12 last week, we saw that the king did what kings normally do. They go to their wise men and they say, I've got a dream. Can you tell me its interpretation? The slight twist of plot on this one was he said, I had a dream. You need to tell me the dream and its interpretation to which they were not prepared to do because they had never been asked to do that before. They had had the books that they had kept on uh, dreams and interpretations that was common in that time to make a, an actual science of it. And when the king says, well, I'm not going to tell you the contents of it, they don't have anything to go to. And there's no appendix apparently in their books that says, when the king won't tell you the dream, here's what you make up. They were absolutely without any hope of revealing information to the king about this dream. And so he says, off with your limbs. And comes Daniel, who is going to be killed along with them. And in 12 through 23, he gets a hearing with the chief henchman, Arioch, and he makes a plea, give me a little bit of time. Me and my friends, don't be so urgent to kill us all, and we're going to pray. And I think just a simple lesson we learned from last week is, in times of crisis, when we are prone to panic, pray. I mean, I could close the Bible today and walk out of here, and I think that might be enough for some of us. In a time of crisis, anxiety, worry, panic, here's a quick lesson. Pray. Because that's what Daniel did. He didn't go back to the books that he'd been studying for three years on how to deal with the king and an interpretation of a dream. He didn't tell his friends, join me in this again, guys. Remember, we were top of the class. Because what I just read, he said, verse 30, there was nothing revealed to me that can be traced back to human wisdom. He said that in verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed, not because of any wisdom I have more than all the living. Right there, a, a shot over the bow of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was used to his guys being able to interpret what he said by their study, by their wisdom. And he's saying, it's not because of that. It's because there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And so here we pick up the story in verse 31. Now is the time for Daniel to reveal the contents of the dream, part one then explain the interpretation of said dream. So part one, the revealing of the dream. Verse 31 says to the king, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. Now just that right there had to keep Nebuchadnezzar uh, in awe. Daniel's boldness, all the, all the preface to this speech, you saw, O king, I'm telling you what you saw. I'm going to say what you saw because God revealed it to me. And that is an apologetic already for what the God of Daniel can do versus what the gods of Babylon could not do. Remember what those wise men told King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They don't dwell here among men. The power that Nebuchadnezzar would have thought he had by being victorious over conquered kingdoms and even, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, when you would conquer another kingdom, it was that your gods were more powerful than their gods. It was a religious, political victory. Hence, we saw that King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 2 had brought all the vessels, all the gold, all the goods of Jerusalem to the house of his God. That was a, a punctuation point on the end of his victory. My God's reign. So you guys can come along and join us. 
But see, his own wise men told him in verse 11, your gods are silent. They're not telling us what it is. And now you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. Daniel begins to explain, but he's also offering this apologetic. There is only one God who can reveal. So right out of the gates, Nebuchadnezzar on the edge of his seat, mouth open and wondering, whoa, right away he knows something. There was an image. And what was this image like? It's probably what had Nebuchadnezzar so shook up. It was mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening. There's the explanation in part for why he was so troubled. This image is something like he has never seen before. Great, mighty, massive, extremely bright, extraordinary splendor, outstanding radiance. And it stood before you and had you in fear. Again, things are turned around for King Nebuchadnezzar because everyone on planet earth stands before him in fear until God gets a hold of him in his dream and says that's not actually how it works. Daniel goes on to reveal the details. And the main thing you see in verses 32 to 35 in the revealing of the dream is a deteriorating quality and value, though not in strength. I mean, that's just, if you're a Bible student and you read through 32 and 33 and 34 about the, the gold and the silver and the bronze, the iron, the iron and clay, you would say, okay, if I just had to look at that picture, like sometimes you had to do maybe in art class and I don't know, high school or college when you're trying to get those electives out of the way. Oh, you know, make some observations about starry night. Oh, no, I mean, it's, it's nighttime. There's stars and they're swirling. Well, what, and what could you gain out of just seeing this image? You can say, hey, it seems that the most valuable is at the top and gold being the most valuable, down to silver and then down to bronze. Iron, not very valuable, but now the metal is actually getting stronger. But just when you think it would end on a really strong point, it ends in verse 34 with iron and clay. So deteriorating in quality while increasing in power up until a certain point, that iron, that very strong metal now is compromised. So that's just the details. But in that detail, verse 35, then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and gold all were broken in pieces. Why? Because of something that was more powerful than the base. And uh, for Nebuchadnezzar, as he hears these details, he would hear of the fatal flaw that he would have known about being a builder of his own right in his own day, hanging gardens of Babylon, wonderful architecture, a man that could, could build up a city and build up a nation. He would see that the fatal flaw in this image was the foundation. No matter how strong the upper body is, guys, go to the gym, bench press only. No matter how strong it was up top, its feet were compromised. The seeds of its own demise were in its foundation with feet of clay. And that's a common phrase we use for what? Somebody may be in power, some, some important person, and they, but they had feet of clay as in there's always a fatal flaw in someone. Anything man-made, no one's perfect. No one's able to withstand all that life can bring at them. They have feet of clay. And these feet and what's going to happen to them are what Daniel wants him to zoom in on. Look at verse 34. As you looked, 
You looked closer, Nebuchadnezzar, and this is what you saw. A stone not cut by human hands. Every other imagery, every other part of that imagery was explained by the work of human hands. Gold, silver, bronze, iron. Men gather those minerals and materials and make brilliant things out of them and impressive things out of them. But then there's this stone. No human hand cut it. Forged by the hand of God. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke it in pieces, and then comes the collapse. Iron, clay, bronze, silver, gold, all falling on itself, broken in pieces, and it just doesn't lay there in a heap. It becomes like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carries it away, and not a trace can be found. All of this image is gone entirely. Not a particle left over from it because of this stone that struck it. The only non-man-made quality, the stone. A picture of complete annihilation. Uh, even an allusion, I guess you would call it, to Psalm 1, verse 4, that the wicked perish. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. And that's all these stronger parts of this image gone entirely. But what remains? The stone it's still just the stone, strikes the image, it's blown away, and then the stone becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. This, this mighty and exceedingly bright, frightening image that Nebuchadnezzar was amazed by now has something bigger to be amazed by, a great mountain that fills the whole earth, something that man has never been able to create. Something as impressive as the great mountains. Yes, we climb them and say we conquered them, but you don't conquer them. You didn't make them. It's already there. And imagine this mountain in this dream going from a small stone that destroyed this statue and then a great mountain and fills the whole earth with it. What could that possibly be? And Daniel now has gotten to a new place in this crisis. He goes from doing uh, the hard thing, which is tell the king the dream that he had without knowing the contents. And you might think like, oh, hard part's over. Told him the content. King Nebuchadnezzar's still sitting there. He, He didn't say, no, that's totally wrong. I didn't dream about that. The hard part of the dream, yeah, telling the content when you didn't know what it was. But the interpretation is going to be the costly part, isn't it? Because just saying what was in the dream, rather neutral. But now saying, here's what this means, he doesn't know if he tells the dream as it is and interprets it rightly, what's going to become of him. He's still not out of the danger zone. And yet listen to his courageous conviction on display in verse 36. This was the dream. Looking Nebuchadnezzar right in the face, saying, this was it. I'm certain of it. I'm more certain of it than you are. This was the dream because the God of heaven reveals mysteries and he wanted to make it known to you. And again, he's not looking for any credit here. He's not looking to to, to boast in him knowing the dream. He knows he's on a mission from God to make known the thoughts of Nebuchadnezzar's mind to him. So part one, this was the dream. This was the revealing of it. And now I'll tell the king it's interpretation. And and just to pause at this point and to say, you know, when it comes to, to the revelation of God, it should always humble us in the way that Daniel 
exhibits humility here, that this isn't about his wisdom and knowledge in Revelation. He, he has said all along to Arioch and to King Nebuchadnezzar, it's about the God of heaven who reveals. And it keeps him humble. And he stays there humble. And, and I think what we can just stop here and appreciate is, is that God has revealed himself to us in his word. Do we sit before it with that same humility? In the same way that Daniel can say this was the dream no, not, a, not a jot or tittle of it has changed. I delivered it to you exactly what was given to me. And I sit under it, not over it. Do we come to the word of God with that same humility this morning? You know, you come in here looking for answers in life. Looking like Nebuchadnezzar was for the greatest answer, some of you. What am I on planet earth for? What's going to be tomorrow? What does the future hold? Praise God, we're not guessing or trying to ask somebody else, hey, I have dreams, can you help me understand them? I have a Bible. I have God's revealed word. God, help me understand this. You've already given it. But like a King Nebuchadnezzar, we're not understanding of the content all the time, and we certainly don't know the interpretation, so we come and we sit humbly before it. Never over it. Always under it, because it has the truth we need. So now let's move to the interpretation, the rising of this kingdom. The content is given. The dream has been revealed. Now the interpretation will be made known, the rising of a kingdom. Verse 37, Daniel says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. Now, again, I love contrasts. He doesn't, it, this seems a bit, you know, much, a bit lavish. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, power, and glory. Yeah, that's a pretty impressive title to, to say to Nebuchadnezzar. But notice he doesn't say like the other guys did in verse 4, O king, live forever. There's no, there's no boasting in him, and there's also no telling a lie. He would not be a king that would live forever. Daniel just tells him, king of kings, you're the most powerful man on the planet, is another way probably to say that. But then he humbles Nebuchadnezzar with the honest truth. The God of heaven gave you this kingdom, gave you this power, gave you the, the glory and verse 38, moving just from kind of abstract thoughts to verse 38 says, Into whose hand he's given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all of them. Everything you have, Nebuchadnezzar, everything you can see when you walk out onto the portico of your, of your palace, as far as you can see in any direction, yes, you are the one in charge of it. And God gave you every single thing you see. And that's, the, that's what we've known in this storyline from Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hand of Daniel. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. It was God doing it. It was God giving. And this is what Daniel is, is, is slowly opening his eyes to see. The God of heaven gave you everything you have. You didn't get it for yourself, even though you think you did. He's the one in charge of all this. He gave it all. And, and when you hear some of this language, especially the language about he's given wherever you dwell, children of man, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens. We talked about this earlier uh, weeks ago. This is kind of a, a, a return to Eden of sorts. There's a, a dominion being had. There is a subduing going on. It's as if Nebuchadnezzar is, is, a, is a picture, but a fallen one at that, of all the potential that God had for Adam. And then when Adam failed, 
And God chose Abraham and said in chapter 12, all the nations of the world will be blessed in you. I've got a plan for Israel, my chosen people. This would have struck at the heart of any Israelite in exile, reading it whenever Daniel had written it, saying, the kingdom and the power and the glory and and dominion and all this ruling, this should have been us. We missed it. Curtis reading Psalm 67 at the beginning of our worship service today is a reminder of the way that the people of Israel should have been thinking about themselves all the time in obedience. God be gracious to us and bless us. Why? So we can get the power in the kingdom of the glory? No, verse 2, that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all the nations. Read through Psalm 95 through 99 this week for your devotions in the morning. And you will hear ringing from the psalmist's pen this language that God, you will be glorified from coastline to coastline in every nation when the people see the brilliance of you and your kingdom. And yet here in Daniel in exile, it's not Israel that is the one putting on display the kingdom and power and glory of God. It's a pagan who has it all. Where Adam failed and where Israel failed will not derail the ultimate plan of God. God bless us so we can be a blessing to the world. Well, God's plan would still be fruitful though his people weren't faithful. And Daniel here is now, or now is here in front of the king telling him, hey, you are where you are right now and there is no one like you on earth. In fact, he even says, you are the head of gold. That's the, the only connection between an actual king and any of these kingdoms to come. You are the head of gold. And that's representative too. He's representing Babylon there. And he, you are at the top. But look how quickly it changes. Verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And on one hand, that you know, compliments Nebuchadnezzar in his reign, doesn't it? It's inferior to you. It's not better than you, bigger than you. But it's going to come after you. As great as you are, the head of gold of this image, you are replaceable. And it won't even be by a kingdom as impressive as yours. It's inferior, and it'll arise after you. And then yet a third kingdom of bronze. And that bronze kingdom, again, in value, inferior to silver, which is inferior to gold. And yet there is this increasing in power, like I mentioned earlier. It may not be as impressive by its wealth, But this bronze kingdom shall rule over all the earth. It'll be a bigger kingdom than yours. And then after that one, as if, could it be more impressive than that? There'll be a fourth kingdom. And this one as strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron, it'll crush and break and crush all these. So the dream was it's the stone that's bringing this whole thing down. But in the interpretation, he's saying, hey, what I'm explaining is one kingdom comes after another kingdom. And yes, they may not have as much wealth and value and be as impressive as the prior one. They will be more powerful and they will strike down the one before it. And that iron that crushes, it's, it's, it's stronger than bronze. It's stronger than silver. It's stronger than gold. And so it can, it can crush those that preceded it. Now, I hit pause here because some of you who read your Bibles often are like, hey, when are you going to tell us who these kingdoms are? Well, I don't see any names right now. Do you? And in preaching the whole counsel of God, 
there are times I can say, you know, we're going to stop, pull the car over, and let's talk about Babylon, gold, Medo-Persia, silver, uh, Greeks, bronze, Roman, you know, the Roman Empire, iron, and the connections. And there are plenty. Uh, you, can, you can read about those kingdoms and what they were known for. And you'll say, wow, this prophecy correctly predicts it. You know, it just doesn't get into that right here. And that's where you have to show some restraint. Because the point of this passage isn't for us to get down and get into the nitty-gritty and which king was this and which kingdom. Oh, and then there's, there's toes or there's feet and there's ten toes. And okay, in 2022, who are the ten kingdoms of the revitalized Roman Empire? We got nine. If only Estonia joins the European Union. No! You, listen, it was kind of fun this week. You can go back and listen to preachers from different decades on this passage, and you will see where we fail. These are good exegetes. These guys know their Bibles, but when you get caught up in, hey, and you know what's going on over in Europe? And then I listen to these things 30 years later and go, that thing that that guy thought he was seeing just came and went. But, you know, we want to be the, the toe counters, don't we, sometimes with prophecy? Oh, you know, like an Agatha Christie novel. Who done it? Who's going to be that tenth toe, the pinky, that's going to bring the return of Jesus? It's not the force of prophecy. When you read prophetic text, what's the overarching tone of the text that we saw in Mark chapter 12? Be ready. Be on the alert. Not be detective Bible sleuth trying to read your times all the time. Sure, it's fun. I would love to come back later this week and have a separate sermon and go into all the stuff about Greece and Rome. It would be really fascinating. It's just not right here. What's right here is kingdoms of man that fail. And then the kingdom that is rising and unstoppable. Verse 41, you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, and it'll be a divided kingdom some of the firmness of iron shall be in it as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And this is with that, that feet of clay that no matter how powerful this fourth kingdom is, this ruling with an iron fist, it's compromised. How did it get compromised? Um, verse 43, you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. They will mix with one another in marriage. So there's a very... Um, Obvious detail that this kingdom, maybe the compromise comes. Why doesn't it stay? Because of intermarriage, as in a compromise of leadership and power, that if it would have just been its own nation and not whatever that might be. And that was common in conquering kingdoms back in this time. To the victor goes the spoils. Sometimes it was, we'll take your people, we'll, we'll put, put the men to use in our service, and, and we'll keep your wives for ourselves. Who knows what it is? All we know is part of the destruction that comes from that last kingdom, the iron mixed with soft clay, has to do with intermarriage or combining of peoples or nations. And it can't hold itself together just as iron does not mix with clay. So there's the backstory for all the failed kingdoms of man. And if there is a message between those four kingdoms that are going to come and go, and we know are blown off the scene back in the image of the dream, it's this. Man's inherent inability to maintain ultimate authority. No matter, no matter how impressive. We have an inherent weakness. The seeds of our own demise are in us. Every man-made kingdom will fail. It will. It's just built into it. It's baked into it. 
That's what we learned from this. They're all going to come and go. And so all these kings and kingdoms are flashing before Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. What will be the kingdom that conquers them? What possibly could crush them all? Answer in verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. There's the answer to all the kingdoms and kings and presidents and dictators and democracies and tyrannies that come and go and are backed up to the landfill of human history and dumped. That's what they are. Every single one of them, even the one that we live in and that we love. Nothing wrong with loving your country especially when it gives you certain freedoms to do what we're doing here. But there's a fine line between being thankful for your country and loving it and serving it and worshiping it. Right? That's the line we don't cross. There's no going to be tut-tut from up here about, you know, be careful of putting a flag in your yard. Some of you gave your, people in your lives, grandfathers, gave their lives. Of course we want to honor that. And be thankful for courage and duty in the face of evil. But we don't worship our country. We start doing that, we're done. If we're not already. Who knows? Who knows how long God has for us? We just know we're another one of these, what? Coming and going kingdoms. Because at the end of the day, verse 44 makes crystal clear... Only God's kingdom will remain forever. And it'll break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. That's it. That's the end game. I mean, that's what rises our hearts to sing about this kingdom that has come in Christ, but is not yet in full. And so we look for it and we long for it and we praise God for it. I don't know if when you read that line, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed and it shall stand forever, if, how you cannot think of Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus. I mean, it was in, in my heart this week just reading that thinking, how, how, did, how, how did someone compose such an amazing song? I mean, we're, we're feet of clay people, but Handel, he figured something out that led him to arrange that song that hundreds of years later singing it, it, it lifts you. When, when you think of it in light of the Bible, not standing alone in and of itself, you read that. I was, I was researching it this week because I was just so impressed by it. And, you know, I know we have to wait till Christmas to sing some of those type of songs, but those four minutes I was reading and I found even an article in all places of the L.A. Times, you know, not a bastion of biblical Christianity, but their op-ed headline from last year, LA Times wrote, Hallelujah, the remarkable story behind this joyful word. And this was the opening paragraph. Over the next four minutes, the choir will repeat the word hallelujah 48 times. But the audience and musicians never seem to tire of it. Listen to it this week. A good version. You never get tired of hearing hallelujah, hallelujah. The Lord our God omnipotent reigneth. I don't care if you've got a problem with the ths at the end. Sometimes it's good for some, oh great thou art. It's okay. 
but just listen to it and, 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 and let your heart rise with the intensity of, of this view of God's kingdom that will never end. This writer goes on to say, because the writer thinks there's something in the word. The writer goes on to say, credit handles vibrant melody, but also the almost mystical power of that combination of vowels and consonants. That's someone in the darkness trying to describe the light. And he can't. Oh, it's the word. It's the syllables. That's why. No, it's the person the song's about. That's why we love that. I mean, that song is pure praise. Because it's just about his kingdom that's going to reign forever that we're never going to get tired singing. And you listen to the choral voices surrounding you just saying to each other, hallelujah, hallelujah. That's heaven. That's God's kingdom that has come in the gospel of Jesus Christ and will return when he returns. That's the one that's going to last forever. No other kingdom will stand. Verse 45, and you saw Nebuchadnezzar, that stone cut from a mountain by no human hand, it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold. A stone not cut from human hands, no human explanation for it. There was, there was accusations against Jesus when he came, that carpenter's son, but that wasn't the explanation for him, was it? No, he was the son of God. No, not cut by human hands. No lineage could explain Jesus the Messiah. And because of that, he was the stone which what? The builders rejected. Psalm 118, 22 to 24. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus repeats that same scripture in Matthew 21 to the Pharisees and the chief priests who had rejected him. In his final week, he tells them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Did you guys miss Daniel chapter two? Come on, guys. You're supposed to be the experts. This was the Lord's doing, marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables and they knew he was speaking about them. This kingdom... It's not man's kingdom, and it can't be seen or understood with human eyes. It's the wisdom of God that reveals it. It's understanding that to enter this kingdom, you must be born again, John 3. That you must enter it like a child, not like a Chaldean king, and all his pomp and pride won't get him in. You come like a child to get into this kingdom. And if you don't, like every other king or kingdom that has passed by the scene, gone from the surface of the earth today, that's our life apart from Christ. You don't come through him. The king of kings and lord of lords, you don't come. And here's the beauty of Jesus Christ, my friend, if you're not in him today. He invites you to come to him. He's, he's not standing so far away, barely whispering, and you just hope you might, if you try hard enough, 
hear the password, you know, the secret handshake. How do I get in the kingdom of God? You listen to the Son of God, who is the King of Kings, who says, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. I mean, here's the invitation from God, very God, calling out to you to come into his kingdom. But you must come humbly. You can't come standing up. You come bowing down. And that's the beautiful invitation of the gospel. If there was nothing a king like Nebuchadnezzar could bring to get into the kingdom, what possibly could you bring? If the Pharisees and the scribes and all their faux righteousness couldn't get into the kingdom, what will you do to impress him? I mean, picture one day any of these kings who came and went standing before Christ. What are they going to say to him? Hey, check out my robe. No, see, death removes all of our robes. When you pass, there's only one robe that's going to matter standing before Jesus Christ. And what robe is it? It's the righteous robe. It's the blood-stained robe. It's the robe that says when you wear the righteous robes of Christ, his goodness is your goodness. His obedience is your obedience. And he takes your sin. And that's the only robe that we will wear that will get us into the kingdom of heaven. Nothing of my own I bring, only to Christ I cling. So have you called out to him? Have you asked him to save you? Have you sought his mercy? Because he invites you still today. It's not too late. You can come to Christ. You have to believe in him. Trust him. Believe that he lived and died and rose again and now rules and reigns from heaven. Trust in his righteousness that he offers you. Trust in the forgiveness of sins that he brings. Put your faith in him today. And that's, that's the only way we get in. And it's been the same for all, for all eternity. It's only through Christ. Back to our story the, the conviction that I could say that to you with today, is, it's the same conviction that Daniel could close out the interpretation at the end of verse 45. He, he says to King Nebuchadnezzar, there is no equivocating here, friend. This dream is certain in its interpretation, sure. It's God's word revealed. It's truth. There's nothing that's changed about this king. Whether or not you liked how that image ended with, with you being replaced by an inferior kingdom and after that all the kingdoms of the world being just blown to smithereens and, and, and the king of heaven comes and sets up a kingdom that will ever end. What was the response of Nebuchadnezzar to that? Well, it's kind of good, kind of bad. Isn't that life? Look at the response of Nebuchadnezzar to close out the lowering of a king from 46 to 49. He kind of gets it right and he kind of gets it wrong. He, he hears this that it's, it's all going to pass away. That is what's going to come after. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know. What's going to happen in the latter days? What's going to happen in the future? His kingdom won't live on through his lineage. 
So he falls on his face, which is, as I say, it's kind of right. Here's a prideful man. And, and trust me, when you read the history of the most powerful kings on earth, you never find them falling before one of their servants and worshiping them. In fact, that's one of the arguments liberal critics have of, of the historicity and trustworthiness of the book of Daniel. They would say verse 46 would never happen. You would never have Alexander the Great bowing before one of his subjects. Cyrus would have never done it. Caesar would have never done it. And here you have so, so blown away by what Daniel said to him. Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face. And here's what he gets wrong. He's, he's humbled, but he pays homage to Daniel and says, let's offer something. And Daniel, your God is God of gods. You don't need to, your God is God. That's it. He could have stopped there. And he's Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you've been able to reveal this mystery. And so the closest he can come to true worship is to worship Daniel because he believes Daniel has the insight into who the true God is. So he's getting closer. And I would just say, friend, you know, learn something here from this moment of Daniel. He doesn't correct Nebuchadnezzar's flawed theology at the moment. He doesn't say, hey, get up, get up. He's, he's also not saying, well... It's about time somebody recognizes who I am. No, that's not in the text. Nebuchadnezzar, he at least is humbled, and that's a good start. And, and may that encourage you in your evangelism, in, in your witness to others, in the unsaved family member or friend who, sure, I know we all want to you know, get up to bat with the gospel, and we have that conversation, and we swing for the fence, and we're hoping it's a home run, and it's a single they're not converted right there. But can you see a step of, a small step of faith, you want to call it that, a small change in their thinking, that they're, they're not as far away as they used to be in the sense of, okay, I'll give you that. Maybe the Bible isn't just um, a man-made book. Hey, that's a start. And maybe that's all the farther you get in the conversation. It's a start. So this was a, this was a, a baby step for the humbling of a very prideful king. I should encourage you. Don't give up. Keep witnessing. Keep praying. Verse 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors, great gifts, promoted him. I mean, he went from being executed to chief executive. Not a bad turn. Over the whole province of Babylon, the chief prefect over all the wise men. This is a Joseph-like moment, isn't it? I mean, it had to, I mean, just put yourself in Daniel's shoes. He would have known his Old Testament. I'm sure he would have known the story of Joseph. He had to be saying, is this really happening to me? You know, it's really awesome. He didn't strive for any of it, did he? What did he strive for? Faithfulness to God. Obedience to God. Convictions about who his God was and, and what his God could do. And God blessed Daniel for that. He now is rising to greater power. And then verse 49, um, he shares the wealth. He makes a request to the king and appoints his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And Daniel remained in the king's court as in right-hand man. Perfect, right? I mean, this, this is a bestseller. Everything, as always, in the Christian faith, 
Neat little package. Sell it. You do the right thing, everything ends up perfect. Tune into the next chapter, and then we'll untie that box. Because, yeah, in the moment, this is great. Daniel is such a good uh, reteller of his story because he leaves you on this high of like, wow, he's promoted. He gives his buddies a promotion. And then come back next week and see where that promotion gets them. And a couple weeks after that and see where Daniel's promotion got him. But these are the small steps, the small tests of faith, of courageous conviction and obedience to God. That, hey, in the moment, God takes something and turns it around. But that doesn't mean the tide is turned for good. But it's a nice ending and we'll, we'll let it be that. And we'll learn a lesson from it. And here I think is, what do we learn from the God who reveals? When he, when he reveals to Nebuchadnezzar and to Daniel and, and to us, what should be our response? I think it's a, it's a humbling text. That's what I would put over this chapter. It was humbling to Daniel to be used in such a way. It's humbling to Nebuchadnezzar for sure. And it should humble us when God reveals his truth to us. And we get to see that he is, he is not impressed with the things that we would be impressed by. If anything, he's always using these things that, what, that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, First Peter, that he would lift us up. But, but there's a humbling that goes on. This, this, this lesson of God's revelation to us is it's, it's, it's personal. Yes, this has some timeless truths to it, but I hope that you come and sit under the word of God today and say, God had something for me to learn here today, personally. God spoke to me personally in this text. This wasn't just a generic, hey, all the kingdoms of the you know, world are going to come and go, but what, what do you individually take away? What is God trying to teach you today individually? Hebrews 12, 25 gives a warning. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but the heavens. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That's our humble response. When God shows us what the future of this planet is moving towards, we should worship him in reverence and awe. First and foremost, because if you're in Christ, you've been brought into this kingdom. And you get all of the riches of it. I think this humbling also, um, it, it does strengthen us in the sense that we see such impartiality of God to, to the man with the most power in this day and age, uh, that is in the time of Babylon. That I think in, in the humbling of us, then it also lifts you up to be maybe a little bit more courageous with the revelation of God. I mean, to say, hey, if, if I am certain that what I have in front of me is authority by way of God's word, and if I am humble before it, if I am humble to bow before the authority of the word of God, I should also then be able to stand in front of any person with that same authoritative word and speak up. So it's, it's humbling but it also gives you a little bit of courage, doesn't it, to say, if, if this is the way the world is going, and if I, if I know the end, 
I, I should have some confidence to speak up to people about it. If Daniel could speak up to Nebuchadnezzar about it, and why he could is because Daniel knew the truth. And in the end, it's God who will reign forever. So you can have courage and be impartial to anybody you meet this week, no matter what their title is or level of importance, to give them the good news. God reigns forever in Christ. Reminds me of a story of a Scottish theologian in the Reformation era, late 1500s, early 1600s. His, he was a, a leader of the Scottish Reformed Church named Andrew Melville, and he would get hearings with King James VI of Scotland, who went on to become King James I of England, that King James, KJV Bible, under his leadership. And sometimes, though, that king would get caught up in his own kingness and overstep his bounds between his kingdom and the kingdom of God. As in, he would forget who's really in charge, and, and brave men like Andrew Melville would have to come with him, and from time to time give him a humble rebuke. And one of these times in particular was recorded, and this is what Andrew Melville had to say to King James VI of Scotland about the two kingdoms that he was forgetting. One is more valuable and weighty and powerful than the other. He said this to the king. This is not a time to flatter, but to speak plainly. For our commission is from the living God to whom the king is subject. We, speaking on behalf of these other uh, pastors and theologians uh, during the Scottish Reformation, um, you know, it's always the guy that gets to speak up for everybody else has the hard spot. But he says, we will always humbly with reverence uh, show your majesty this in public but having the opportunity of being with your majesty in private, we must discharge our duty or else be enemies to Christ. And now, sir, I must tell you that there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, head of the commonwealth, and there is the kingdom of Christ, which is the church whose subject King James is and of whose kingdom he is not the head but a member. That's what courageous convictions sound like. Humbly, but compassionately and truthfully. Going in front of the most important person and saying, Sir, you're forgetting which kingdom you too belong to. You may be the king of everything you could see around here, but there is only one king up there. And we all need to hear that. God's revelation in the Bible about who's really in charge is given for us to grow and given for others to know who is in control, who reigns, and who reveals. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for its power. I mean, we saw that in display this morning, that it was only the power of your revealed truth that could humble a man like Nebuchadnezzar that he was outmatched, that in a small way he started to see the seeds of his own demise, of his pride. And though it would take longer for him to fully understand it, we can praise you that this morning we could see that when we stand with courage and we speak up with boldness and we do so humbly, what you can do with that, which is our desire it's to preach the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, 
compassionately, courageously with conviction. And so I pray this morning that we walk out of here trusting you. That the power is not in us. We are not the explanation for any success we see around us for the gospel going forth. We are merely your vessels. We're your pots to be used for the, for the glory of Jesus Christ to shine through. So do that with us, we ask. Amen.